Welcome to My Hard Drive Died, episode number 12. I'm here with Scott Moulton, our all-knowing hard drive expert. What's going on, Scott? Oh, the world is continuing to turn. It's been very busy. How about you? The <laughs> world's continuing to turn. <laughs> not as busy as you. I hear you're all over the world these days. Yes, uh, I've traveled quite a bit recently. So, uh, you know, luckily, I'm finally back because I've been gone for like, you know, seven of the last eight weeks or so. So we haven't even been able to do a podcast in two months. So now we got to catch up. I know. I apologize to the listeners. We'll try not to make such a wide gap next time. Yeah, it's really nothing we could have done about it because I was traveling. I was in Spain testifying in a forensics case, and so I was gone for the better part of a month. Uh, yeah, tell us what you've been doing. It's hard drive related, so yeah, yeah. It's a uh, you know because most of our listeners know that a lot of times not only do I fix and repair the drives, but in a lot of cases I might have to examine the content and testify about those particular items as well. So you know, it's another. Another capacity that I fill in my job and, you know, obviously trying to figure out how to make lots of money. That's all of our goal, I think. Right. Um, So I I had a forensics case that um, I had some investigative components that made their way to Spain. So I had to go to Spain to testify in a court system there, which is completely different than the court system that we actually have here. So results are different and preparing for it's different and trying to go through the whole process. Of course, there's traveling and taking trains and going to the court system itself. So what's different about it? Well, you know, the first thing is they're under a Napoleonic system. So whereas here we have, you know, a judge and a jury and we have more rights and options from that perspective there, they don't have a jury. So there's really just a judge. And I guess the judge is the judge, jury and executioner. So he pretty much decides everything. They don't have, uh, you know, if you don't agree with his findings or whatever else, you're going to have to fight it through the court system as opposed to, I'd like a jury to, to hear my trial. So, wow. so you, if he's having a bad day, it's not good. Yeah, it's kind of my impression is that, you know, it seems very, to me, and again, this kind of seems different compared to our court system and how complex our court system is, because by comparison, it is, you know, very complex. The uh, it, it didn't seem like there was a lot of different options or a lot of ways to make your arguments and do things. It's pretty much, hey, look, this is the way it is. And if you don't like it, well, it's too bad. Here we are in Spain. And, you know, one of the other complications I had is that I don't speak Spanish. So I don't I don't speak their dialect. I don't speak any. I mean, I speak English. So we had to have a translator as well. And a translator in a technical case is very difficult because it was I'm talking to the guy and it seems perfectly fine. And then, of course, I've got to make a statement that is about forensics. I've imaged the drives. I've reviewed the computer. I looked at this using forensics toolkit, blah, blah, blah. That completely messed everybody up. The second that I mentioned anything that had anything to do with technology and stuff, they had no words for it. And it was it was kind of funny, really, when you're kind of dealing with like we backed up and instead of the normal attacks, I would usually get on your person or or what is your experience and you know what are your certifications and things like that. It was pretty much Along the lines of what is a server, where is a hard drive, things like that. Wow. You know, what is what is an image? What is an image? And some of the things they didn't have words that matched. I, I guess um, like we have unallocated space on a hard drive. So typically, when you're talking about unallocated space, you're talking about the space that's free on the drive, the, the free space that doesn't have files that are currently known by the file system, but may have previously existed. Hmm. So they, they didn't understand the word unallocated. So I swear that I think that was like 
five or ten minutes of my testimony of what was unallocated. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> so, you know what would probably have been better? A tech a tech translator. Well there isn't one. There was barely English translators that I mean in the English the guy spoke English perfect. He was he taught English in school. So he spoke English you know great and no problem talking to him at all. As a matter of fact, that was part of our testimony which was different. It was I had to have a conversation in front of the court with the translator to prove that we could both speak the same language. <laughs> so, but even even so, I would think Scott, like somebody who's in the tech world, it was Spain, right? Yes, Spain. Yeah, somebody's in the tech world, Spain. Like they have, I'm sure that's like a person who works on hard drives in Spain has words for like you know unallocated. Well, I gotta so. tell you, I didn't see a lot of tech. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> there wasn't a lot of tech to be had there. It seemed. <laughs> Uh, I mean, this, there was something that were a little shocking to me. Things like uh, they take off a whole month in August just to party and, you know, whatever and take a vacation. Uh, nobody works. And they have light weeks, like 32-hour 32, 32 weeks instead of 40 hours. And so, you know, they don't have dinner until 11 o'clock at night. I didn't see a lot of tech, though. There wasn't really, like, you know, there was a couple of computer stores and maybe you know, a couple of phone stores. And uh, I had a lot of difficulty buying a phone there, I'll tell you. Um, so... I don't know what to tell you. There was not yeah. a lot of tech, and and like I said, I was lucky to have a translator. There, there, there are no technical cases there, as best I can tell yet. That this was like the begin. This would be like 1998 for us. <laughs> wow! In, in court, and it was I had to start all over again. And even now, I don't think that judges really understand a lot about what I talk about, but they right. understand the words and where we're going with it. Right. And I didn't get that impression really from the court system at all there that they you know, if they had any idea or understanding with regards to what that is and what the evidence is. Um, at, least I mean, make, at least you're making history over there. I don't know. It's kind of, so, so, you know, one of the things that came back and, you know, this case isn't done, it's going to continue on and there's still some judgments to be made and the judge has to actually decide whether or not he's going to allow the evidence or not is my understanding. So I don't want to speak too far out there on that yeah. until, until October or so, sure. but Ultimately, there was this, this kind of finding that um, regardless of what the evidence said and where this email and these other things came from, that people there have a right to privacy regardless of what it is. So even if you have, you know, it seemed like, oh, if I have an email and it said, I killed Joe, that that evidence is not admissible because that person has a right to privacy. Wow. And so that's, we do have some situations here, obviously in America where that's the case, but ownership is a big portion of it and in you know trying to understand what the legal system was there was much different but you know to have all this evidence that actually says all these things had happened and to basically kind of get the feedback that it may be ruled inadmissible just because they have this right to privacy there that we don't really see here um in the same way I, again i've had cases where right to privacy counts and it's like oh i'm talking to my doctor or you know, I'm having a conversation with my banker or something like that. But right. it was it was much different there and uh, a little scary. Actually, they 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 spent a lot of time uh, at the beginning trying to say, if you lie, we have a prison for you. <laughs> and so they they were very, you know, and not that we don't have that here. They they you know, they do make you swear, but they tried to make sure that I understood what that meant, I guess. Right. right. As best I can tell, you know, don't don't lie or you're going to jail. Like, OK. Um, <laughs> Right, that's what I'm here for. Right? <laughs> that's pretty wild, man. <laughs> yeah, so, well, it seems that there seems to be a bias by default. Like here in the United States, even though you're paid by 
one side. The other side, you're, you're still supposedly non-biased. That's the whole point. You're supposed to be non-biased. Right. You're looking at the evidence, and I do everything I can. I, I don't, you know, my feeling is I don't care which side of the case I'm on. I'm here to tell the truth. Right. And if you did it, you did it. If you didn't do it, then I'm going to tell say that too. And right. if it hurts my client or hurts my client, that's too bad. That's, that's I already got my money. So <laughs> uh, that's the way it should be. I, it's, commend, well, it's, a, it's commendable. That's, that's what it's supposed to be. But there, if you're paid by one particular side, then they consider it to be bias. I see. To begin with. And so you already come in with this whole idea that what you're about to say is, is not beneficial to both sides. So anyway, so that was that was my trip and having you know a nice exciting time trying to deal with the court system. Wow, that's pretty wild. Yeah, I mean, I mean I'm I'm a little ignorant of what what goes on abroad, so uh, I gotta head out there myself one of these days. Sounds interesting though. Yeah, I went to uh, Spain, France. I went to Paris, then I went to London, and then I went to Scotland. So I kind of made my way all the way up. Man, yeah, it was, right. it's, it's beautiful. I gotta say, Scotland's beautiful. So. Is it really? Yes, no, knew a couple people from there, but I've never been there either. Right. And there was no tech there either. <laughs> Just so you know, and nowhere I, you, nowhere you go. I barely saw a computer. Really, I, I wonder how that would be. They See, were all completely shocked at this uh, iPad that I had with me. Are you serious? <laughs> yeah, like wow, an iPad. Wow, we've never seen that before. That's wow. awesome. That's or well, I was in France, and they're like, "Hey, yeah, we just got these last week. <laughs> Finally, damn." And I already had, you know, because obviously it was released later there. But right, there right. were some countries who didn't have it at all. Uh, the funny thing is, though, is that iPhone 4s were coming out at the same time. And so everywhere I was traveling around, there were lines outside those buildings for uh, iPhone 4s. Really? Hey, but you don't so, have, you still have the 3GS? No, I got a 4. Oh, you got a 4? Oh, they probably are. You didn't show it to anybody. You probably get robbed, right? Well, <laughs> I didn't have the 4. I had it shipped to me, so... You, I couldn't use it anyway because uh, in, in Europe it had to be unlocked in order to use it, and I so I didn't. I didn't have it on me. I actually used an iPhone one that I had uh, hacked the heck out of um, to to get it cracked to use it while I was there. Yep. Wow. No, I'm not yeah. saying I'm, I didn't mean like get, get robbed. Like those countries are unsafe. I'm just saying if it's in such high demand, they probably would have mo- at least mobbed you to take a look well, at it. You know, actually, there is quite a bit of. Um, it, I understand it's not violent threat theft. It's basically right. that. You know, they apparently are really good at pickpocketing and, and doing things. We did hear stories about the people that tra- travel on the trains when you take the train and you go overnight. Right. That, that there, some of the people were being gassed in their room. So someone would, you know, slide ga- a gas bomb or something underneath the door and that they, it would knock them out and they would sleep all night through and someone would come in and rob them. Oh, man, that's horrible. So, so, yeah, so we had a couple of things like that that we were warned of. And, and I do know some people that were, like, in Spain and Barcelona, and they said that, you know, there's, like, ten of them at a table, and they were talking over something on their laptop, and then they stood up to do a cheer, and then somehow their laptop disappeared. <laughs> so I'm like, wow, those are some really talented people. So, <laughs> so yeah, so everywhere I went, I had locks on my bags and everything to make sure that at least it wasn't easy to unzip unless they took the whole bag. Right. Oh, that's so, good. Yeah, it sounds interesting, man. Good job. Glad you're home. Yep, me too. Uh, what do you want to talk about this week? Well, you know, we have lots of uh, things that are just now coming around the corner. I saw, uh, you know, a recent post that Seagate's going to continue to work forward on their hammer drives because they actually posted a job up on, like, LinkedIn or something. Like, you know, somebody need to have a physics degree, come work over here. <laughs> uh, so, again, they're going to carry forward because they submitted a patent for that years ago. I had talked about it in one of my first um, 
one of my first DEFCON talks, I think. And uh, so now they're finally moving forward on it, I guess, and it's kind of scary. So we can talk about that. We also have, uh, you know, DEFCON. I just got back from DEFCON uh, after visiting out there in Vegas for the week and, you know, a few talks and a couple of things going around, but nothing, you know, nothing really unusual from a standpoint of drives. I'm seeing more and more uh, Western digitals and different types of Western digitals and more Seagates that are coming in that, with failures. But um, there's there hasn't been a lot of unusual things other than changing the generation of drives now. They, right. they still fundamentally look the same. Uh, we do have Seagate drives have now been adding NAND to the board itself so you now have four gigs of nand in combination they're calling it a hybrid drive that's what I, I did want i actually did want to bring that up i saw heard about it or saw something about it an article about it or something yeah so that's a, a you know official hybrid drive how many how many gigs are they putting on these drives well it was only four gigs on the nand side and then you know they still had the standard spinning disk so you could still end up with you know a large spinning disk and having to deal with it in a standard way and then have the actual nand with its controller uh, very similar in nature to a USB device, except you have a processor on that board, so it will actually handle. Um, whereas, on, you know, on a USB device, you don't have a processor, right. so you're using your what's called a host-based controller. So the host-based controller is your CPU, and it does that through the drivers. But on the Seagate ones, there's no additional driver needed, like the old because the old hybrid drives that we previously had that people were always talking about, like right. when Vista came out, right, right, going to support hybrid drives, and it was complete failure. Um, those those hybrid drives needed a particular driver in order to actually work to be able to talk to the memory and stuff at the same time. In this particular instance, Seagate has actually uh, modified the device so that that four gigs of, of uh, available NAND is being communicated with through the processor is what it appears to be. It's not, it doesn't appear like it's showing up as a separate device. Um, I don't have one yet to actually try it out yet. I'm starting to see them on just now coming out and maybe hitting the shelf. So as soon as I can pick one up, I'll actually be trying it out to see myself. Um, I can see the obvious problems that I'm already going to have. It's going to be the same as doing a USB data recovery because if something bad happens to the board, you're going to be trying to take the NAND off, read the NAND, try to process the chip, and then trying to interpret what that data actually says. So it's going to be another an, you know, another ordeal to deal yeah. with. It sounds more complicated. I'm, I'm excited about these drives. It's like getting the speed of a, you know, an SSD. for pro- Probably not going to be as much as SSDs, right? Not cost as much? Well, see, I don't really agree with that 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 thought process from that standpoint because for you know first thing is you only have the four gigs of NAND, so you know maybe you can get your OS installed, so maybe it'll be faster for your boot time or whatever. But you're still storing your data over here on a disk; it's still done through cache and through memory as a normal process. So there may be a small amount of of increase in speed or performance by uh-huh. having this four gig, but I, I don't really see you know four gig being a very usable component if you have you know, 64 gigs, and you have this major component over here, and you only store your bit torrents over on the, uh, you know, spinning platters. Right. That might make more sense to me, but I see this as the same failure as the failures that we've had before with this small, it's 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 only rudimentary, you know, it's, it's only in this in-between state. There's nothing that's going to be um, very full-featured that's going to survive very long. I mean, think about it. I mean, four gigs doesn't sound like much to you, does it? No, but I could have sworn it was more than four gigs on these things. I'm pretty sure that that's what the current I saw that okay. was a four gig uh, on the. I'll double check and make sure, but I'm thinking 16. But like I said, I, I don't have it up. I, I and I, I don't remember where I saw it exactly, but I, I thought it was 16. It might be totally my bad, but uh, I yeah. get what you're saying. I get what you're saying about the cache memory and, and you know maybe not that much of a 
of a speed difference. Well, Seagate, it says right here, Seagate paired the 7200 RPM hard drive with 4 gigs of NAND okay. in its uh, blah, blah, blah. Okay. And so now, what is, NAND, what is NAND? What does it stand for, and what is it as compared to, like, Well, NAND memory? is actually a mathematical calculation. It's like you have, you know, NAND and NOR. And so there are mathematical functions on how a grid actually is working inside the drive. So both of the types of chips that we're doing that are NAND and NOR, both have existed since 1984. They were both designed by the same guy who worked at Toshiba, um, Dr. Mechifushi. I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but uh, he worked at Toshiba and came up with this this particular type of chip. Now, what what ended up happening is um, NOR, which was a very high-speed read at the time. It Mm -hmm. could read very fast, had a very slow write cycle. And you could only write a up to like 10 times. It was like a double EEPROM kind of situation where you could write to it, but in the process of writing to it, you do major physical damage to the device. So after you exceed, say, 10 or 12 times, it would actually destroy the device. Uh, so it was great for things like biases and, and items on your computer where you might only update them 10 times right. and over the lifespan of the device itself. But it's it wasn't very robust for rewritable devices. So NAND is actually the other one that existed that we didn't actually start using into, you know, USB drives and things like that until much later, but we did use them in between um, NOR for the biases and using flash on our motherboards in small capacities for rewritable content uh, to make it last longer. But is, when is, the this, prices, is this what we know now as flash NAND? Yeah. Flash is NAND and NAND's that NAND's, NAND's nickname is flash. And the reason that it's called that is that uh, there's this process of where you store electrons into a gate. And this gate has to be, in order to release the electrons, you have to drain the gate. So you're allowing these electrons to escape. And apparently in the process, when they were working at Toshiba and the doctor was actually working on this and building this device, uh, a friend of his was working with him. And when they opened the gate and they let the electrons out, it flashes and he said, hey, that looks like a Kodak camera flash. So from there, that's where the name Flash supposedly came from and has stuck over all this time. Wow. That's tremendously interesting. So, uh, so yeah, so it's all based on the camera flash of a Kodak camera or something huh. uh, or a Polaroid camera or something. But, uh, but ultimately, that's where the name came from, and it's stuck, and that's what they've continued to use it. Now, ultimately, this guy who designed it didn't really make any money. He just worked a regular job, and so... You know, he was a little kind of PO'd when, you know, they started selling, making billions of dollars. And there's this industry that makes billions. And so sometime here in the last uh, 10 years or so, he had sued Toshiba to try to get more money for his creation and his development, saying that he had not been paid, even though he had been, you know, an employee of the the company and his idea was owned by them. Um, He did win $750,000 or something That's it? Yeah. That's all yes. they gave him. Oh, man. T- bad Toshiba. Yeah. Well, you know, you're an employee of another company, and they own your ideas, and they own your development, and they're paying for your cycle and, you know, the whole thing. Many of us have signed up for that before. So you don't own your stuff. And, you know, sure, it became this big uh, billion-dollar industry kind of thing. But, right. you know, ultimately, I guess he could use his fame to continue on and try to. I guess, but as a company, one would reward something that such a great discovery. You know, even though okay, maybe it's not in the contract. One would one would think that as a businessman, okay, let's just give this guy a lot of money. He he did a good job. Pat on the head. You know what I mean? Do more good stuff. Yeah, but right. I guess not. 
Well, I mean, he's already been gone from the company, I think. I don't think okay. he's been there. I don't think he's uh, still there. I got you. He's gone off and started his own company and done uh, and, and continued on doing things gotcha. as opposed to continuing to work there, I guess. Okay. All right. That makes sense. So Interesting. So that that's the the new hybrid drives. Now it's just Seagate that's coming out with these. Are any of the other big names doing them? Um, I really haven't seen you know other than completely being NAND devices. You know, because now two hundred and fifty gig, you know, NAND devices are available. Flash devices are available as drives for seven hundred dollars or so. So you know, as time goes on, I you know I really think it's just that Seagate's trying to stay in the game. Yeah. Because as it continues to move over in this way. And 52% of all sales of computers now have moved to laptops. The laptops are basically taking over. And my prediction still is that by 2012, every laptop manufacturer is going to primarily be offering NAND devices. Because I don't, I still don't feel like people who carry laptops care that much about how much space they carry. And I'm sure I will get some arguments from people that say, you know, otherwise. But right now, I see that the main laptop hard drive that exists in almost everybody, everybody takes my class everywhere I go and I poll people. Most of them, most of them have 320 or so gigs. I guessed 160. I was low. Yeah, that's a little low, but you know, it's only because as they rekey and they move ahead that, um, because you got to remember in in 2006, the largest hard drive that we had available by the middle of 2006 was an 80 gig hard drive. And we started getting 120s you know, or 100s by the end of the year, and then they switched to perpendicular recording. So that's what doubled our space. We ended up with 160s and three, you know, 320s and so on and so on. But if you really look at that, you go, how many of us have been in a hurry? There are a few of us who carry a lot of data. I carry a tremendous amount of data with me. But now I've got, you know, you've got your external one terabyte drives and blah, blah, blah. And I don't care so much about how much space. I live primarily now on a solid-state MacBook Air with 128 gigs and it's it's good for you know 90 percent of what i want to do and then i still have an external hard drive for when i need it but i you know unless i I, you know now my like for instance my ipad has 64 gigs and movies are compressed and everything and i can easily carry you know 20 movies on my ipad and watch them i really don't care about that much space on my now i do have laptops that have 500 gig drives in them and so on and so on if i need them but yeah. It's 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 not a common thing to be able to say now that it's, I really need right. uh, this giant drive. So 256 gigs is more than sufficient for 90% of the market out there. I agree. And if we're getting the price down and it's being built into laptops, because they don't really drop the price of laptops. They keep them the same and just put newer, better parts in them or bigger things. Right. I don't know if that's the right word, but... Uh, they they try to keep them about the same price points, and so they can try to keep their profit margins. So you the same. think speed is now going to be what people are going for? No, I don't think it's about speed for those. Again, you know, I know a lot of people talk about speed, but when you're opening Word and you're working on it, which is ninety percent of the work that people do, is not is it's not about speed. It's a uh, because these people with you know these lap even laptops as a whole that, that people aren't playing games. That's not what they're doing. They're not looking right. at speed. So you're saying it's, these people don't care about what they get? No, it's because. You have a silent, low-power device mm-hmm. that is not going – your head is not going to whack the platter when you drop your laptop or something I like that. So it's a completely perfect device for laptops, even though I still believe we're going to have this high point of failure because these things are dying left and right, and people just don't know it. I've really? heard some numbers. Yeah, I've heard numbers lately that are just astonishing because I, I talk to people at 
some of the bigger companies and and development companies and people who sell laptops and things. So, you know, at DEF CON and stuff, you're shaking hands with people who are responsible for getting those things out the door at the top five companies. And they're coming back with major failures, from what I understand. Just like I've said before, the way NAND dies and it slowly diminishes and your USB memory stick is diminishing while you're actually using it. And, you know, like I said before, if you watch over time, if you watch your USB memory stick size, you'll actually see cells as they start to die over a year, you'll actually start to diminish in capacity by a fairly large number. During the class, I use two flash memory sticks for each person to image and do a data recovery from. And during this process, uh, over the last year, the image that I'm doing the restore from is larger than the memory stick now because now the bounds of the memory stick are beyond the end of the disk because the disk has lost so many cells that they are all dying. And you're they, using these same sticks. How many times have they been written on? Maybe only 10 now. Wow. Uh, every every year I've been replacing them. So by the time I get around to next year's class, it's only been it's only been that much. Wow. That so what do you think then? What if you had like recommend something of this technology that people should adopt? What, what, where do you think it's going and what do you think people should should want? Well, I think for the most part, no matter what, that the manufacturers are going to be moving to NAND. It's going to, you know, as they rekey, they retool their stuff, they're not going to be continuing to push 17 different hard drives in their laptops. It's too much work for them to do. So I think that without options, we're going to be just looking at new solid state hard drives in laptops in 2012 or so. And I think that what what the plan is, is that everybody thinks you're just going to upgrade and PC laptops tend to be disposable after two years. So at the end of two years, you're going to start seeing, you know, year three, year four, all these failures from the wear leveling and and diminished capacity and things that are actually happening to them. I think the plan is, is that when bad things happen and it doesn't work anymore, people just buy a new laptop or a new drive. And so, so it's working may, out and it's working out well then for these companies. Well, I mean, look at it from a technology standpoint for the iPhone. I mean, the iPhone is built on NAND. It's built on the same process, the whole thing. And every, you know, every year to six months, eight months, nine months, they're driving us to a new phone. And so the phone that was released in 2008 is no longer supported anymore. So now we're in 2010, we're less than two years out, and we're talking a phone, which is, you know, highly more likely to be continued to be used as long as it is functional than possibly a laptop might be. And so when it dies and people go, oh, it just died, they just go and get a new one. So they don't think twice about it. Right. And so that's kind of the thing. I mean, a 3GS is still usable. A 3G has become pretty much unusable. Uh, and first-generation iPhone, if you upgrade, you know, if you can't upgrade. So yeah, nothing you can't. Do. So, so, you know, that's kind of the way things are going. Now, Microsoft already knew this years ago with Windows CE on their phones. So on their phones, when Microsoft had released, you know, because it's been around a lot longer than the iPhone has been. Sure. But... Um, when the phones would start having NAND die on them, it would just be an unexpected death on their phones. They, Microsoft, I believe, actually figured out that they knew that the reason was the file system itself was you know, functionally eating the disk. So that's why in 2006, with the development of Windows CE 6, they released something called XFAT, which basically is kind of like FAT64. It basically just stops doing all the performance increasing things to the disk because while you're doing that you're causing a bigger death if it's a NAND if it's flash it will actually cause more read and write processes so you can't it's not a great thing to have like NTFS on a solid state device right. uh, because of of the process that it does so 
Microsoft now knows that no one's going to use XFAT because XFAT is is not very easily functional from a standpoint of we love NTFS on our machines. Right. We want to use NTFS on our laptop by comparison. I don't know if anybody loves it or even cares, but uh, but <laughs> the whole point ended up being is that that's why Trim exists. Microsoft came out with Trim, which in Windows 7 will detect I have a solid-state drive as long as the solid-state drive supports the you know in a firmware component it'll actually say i support trim it will disable all of those performance enhancing features that are inside of ntfs that say move my files to the beginning of the disk because it means nothing um you know because the way the way a normal hard drive works is on the outside edges of your platters you the outside edge the head could stay in the same place and read more data because you have a larger area that you can write to. Right. So so there, therefore, it's considered to be faster at that location. So right. the outside edge of the platter is typically considered to be the fastest. And so as you're going further into the disk, the, the, the further you go or the second partition or the third partition becomes the slowest location on your disk. So because you have this outside edge, it tries to move all the important data. So you have the MFT, the master file table for Windows is moved to the outside edge, and you have your most used recently Word documents get shuffled to the outside edge so that when you read and write them, that they're much faster than they would be if they're chunked up in the slower place right. on your disk. Does a drive and, typically write from outside to inside just in, in its general course of um, Yes, it does. What happens is the manufacturers decided, well, we need to decide where these fastest locations are on the drive, so they came up with something called zone tables. And zones are exactly what you think they are. They're a section of the disk that's divided up, and they're divided up according to their location based on speed. So what you have is on the first outside edge, you'll have zone zero and then zone one and zone two and so on and so on. But they may be, there's a latency, there's amount of time for you to write to the top of a platter, turn off the head and write to the bottom of a platter. So what they decided to do is break up the zone on each side of the platter. So zone zero would be, generally on the top or the bottom or wherever the platter is that they're choosing. I'm just, you know, going through that process. Uh, they would divide up so that you don't have to turn off the head. You just write to the top side of a platter, you know, for 4 million sectors before you have to turn it off and switch to the next head right. and then switch to another zone. So they would they would make these zones in order so that your head would start to write, and now I made it this far, and now the optimum component would be to move the head back to the outside edge and write to the second component on another platter. Does that make sense? Yeah. So basically they broke up these zones in stacks across the disk. So you'll just see these stacks that are broken up that'll be zero, one, two, and three, and so on and so on, all the way to the middle of the disk. Hmm. And so those are where LBAs are the lowest numbers. So in zone zero, typically you'll see that the LBA number will be the lowest number. So from zero to four million, will be in zone zero. And so when you're actually writing at the disk, it, that's what it does. It sequentially writes from zero to wherever. And then the operating system is taking over and doing other functions that are irrelevant to the drive. The drive is doing its own deal. Right. The operating system is dealing with things broken up into clusters or inode tables or, you know, if you're in, you know, HFS world or something like an inode table or something. Um, so they're broken up differently as they're, uh, as you're, as you're, going from the physical level to the logical level, which would be what your operating system does as opposed to the physical device. So if you're running, so if you put a solid state drive in a Windows 7 machine, um, it won't change the file system. It'll just say this is, it has the ability to use trim and trim yes. is, is just an addition to NF, uh, NTFS to make it 
more suitable for a solid state drive? Yeah, I, I mean, primarily what Trim does is either turn off or change functions inside of NTFS's ability to run. It doesn't change the structure right. of NTFS. When you're looking at it, it, it in and of itself, it doesn't change its physical structure. It just changes how performance items are handled and things that are actually changing inside the device so that so that it doesn't kill the device any worse than, you know, because now you're moving and shuffling components right. around. So what what is the best file system to use for flash memory or, or SSD drives? Well, you know, FAT is very light, and that's one of the reasons why we have it on the device. I mean, it's not very robust. It doesn't have a lot of redundancy, and when you lose, you know, these two FAT tables, FAT itself, FAT, the standard FAT32 that most of us are using, uh, when it's on a USB memory stick, it has these two little tiny tables that are our file allocation tables, and they're very small by comparison to the rest of the disk. So when you overwrite something, you have high high potential for losing those two tables. And when you do, you have no metadata on the rest of the drive to tell you know where my picture was or what right. this picture's name was. Right. So you lose your name, your folder structure, dates and times, you lose the root directory, um, and fragmentation is typically extremely bad on FAT. So, but the file system itself doesn't shuffle a lot of content around. Hmm. So, and FAT is pretty much supported in every operating system that we have. So Mac supports it, you know, Linux supports it, Windows supports it. Uh, there's other file systems that support it too. The only problem is, is that Microsoft has decided that this is patent encumbered, that they own the intellectual property and that they've kind of gone after people before for it and using it and not licensing it and things like that. So, you know, there's, it's becoming one of those things where people are like, well, what's all alternatives? What can we use instead? And so there hasn't really been another winner that has been very robust really? that we can use so instead we're, we're, of... So we're still waiting for the new technology, the new latest and greatest to come out for right. Fly. What, well, is, you know, what, what does my Android phone use then? Uh, it, well, it's a Linux-based operating. It's probably using some variation. I mean, I'd actually have to look it up and see, but maybe some variation of EXT or some other... Okay. Oh, JFFS, like a journaling file system. Like, so yeah. there is a... There is, in Linux's world, there is a, a Flash-based file system that basically lays content out a little bit differently. So it's probably using JFFS. So okay. uh, things like that, because they, they're also used on DVRs and things. So if people want to write content in a contiguous area, that there's some functionality there to do that. Right. But, um, but, but, but Windows will probably still use FAT as long as they want. Uh well, Windows doesn't consider FAT to be viable anymore. If your device is larger than 32 gigs, you can't format it in Windows anymore uh -huh. in FAT. So that's kind of the downside is that if you have uh, like I have a you know a 64 gig and 128 gig memory stick, I yeah. can't format them in FAT. I have to go to like my Mac to format them in FAT to actually use them on Windows. Huh. But so if you did install like an SSD in a Windows computer and you did like a reinstall on it, it would it wouldn't let you use FAT. It would still use NTFS, but it would also I guess allow you to put this trim on it, right? Trim trim has to be supported by the manufacturer. So like if you install okay. if you know if you install an X25 from Intel or something that supports trim. And so Windows 7 would look at it and go, "I, you know, that's another function that takes place that has nothing to do with what the file system is I'm okay. using. Right. So NTFS is the file system, gotcha. and and it just disables certain functionality in those particular devices for the for that file system. So interesting. So it makes the device live longer. Obviously, is the whole point. And gotcha. where you know we were we were kind of in this world where we hoped Mac OS was going to move to ZFS as a file system, and. They did have ZFS in their tree for Snow Leopard, 
and it looked like that we might have a good chance with that. But then, of course, Sun, who developed ZFS and is using it in uh, Open Solaris and stuff, got not only bought by Oracle, but also sued by NetApp. So NetApp had started a lawsuit against them saying that you didn't develop ZFS, we did, and you stole our stuff. And so it died kind of on the Mac vine. Oh, so man. there isn't, yeah, so Mac, Mac OS no longer has it or is looking forward to that. And HFS is, is a terrible file system. And so HFS is what Macs use. And HFS is just, it just falls apart. Hmm. So we really need another file system that's right. more robust and has all these extra features. But if you really look at it, we're living on file systems. All of them have all been around for 20 years or more. Right. I mean, uh, HFS was designed in 1985. Um, NTFS is not actually called NTFS. In the real world, it's really HPFS. So high performance file system, which was developed by uh, IBM for OS2. Wow. So. So that's actually what NTFS is. They changed they changed some bits, and then there's a few of them that have changed over time for single-sector failure. So we actually have a little bit of redundancy, uh, like like Block 17 or something like that was a, a failure in, in OS2 that if that one sector died, that you couldn't boot your machine anymore. So there's some redundancy there. But, you know, ultimately, every it, it, everything still looks at it as HPFS. So it's still based on uh, OS2's HPFS file system, and that has been around since the mid '80s. I mean, they wow. started development on that in, um, you know, '84 or something like that. So we're still dealing with that old file system. Fat's been around longer because uh, Fat32 is just another rendition of, you know, an appendage that was added onto Windows 95 uh, OSR2, I believe, was the release of that in 1995. But it was an appendage that was added onto Fat16 hmm. uh, for you know, to have a larger partition size. You know, I, I put my money on Google. I bet they come out with something. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. You saw they killed Google Wave today. <laughs> so another failed product. <laughs> no. so, I don't know. I still, I still have a little faith in them. You know, because I still think they want to, I, th- I think they want to dominate the desktop or at least, you know, um, come out with an operating system that's not just mobile like Android or, or expand Android into a desktop. I think they're going to go in that direction. I, I just I have a feeling. Well, I mean, you're you're more concerned with the product. They don't give a crap about the products. That's that's not the way I see it. I see that their whole point is collection of data, that they don't make any money off of, you know, the product. They probably don't make money off of having Android in existence or anything. What they make money off of is this possibility that they can collect data and, and you know, continue to move forward with sell, new ways of sell, collecting sell advertising. Well, yeah, I mean, they, well, they, you want, know, they want people to use the Internet. That's their whole deal because they have ads all over the Internet. So, well, I mean, if you're using Android and you're using other stuff and you're using Gmail to actually talk to stuff and Gmail is actually ad assisted, basically, because, you know, they look at your actual mail and they really review right. your mail and things like that to actually display ads and things that are pertinent to you. Right. So, you know, it's all about data collection and stuff. I, I don't I really don't see where they actually, you know, maybe they're helping the world because they have some money. So they're doing some development on the other side. And, you know, I don't want to get like a thousand emails from yeah. things like you Google hater or something. No, but, no, I get what you're saying. It but, makes it makes sense. Yeah, like, why would they come out with a file? It's just a, it's but all of these, no matter what it is, it's only about money. I yeah. mean, if you can make a cool product because people will let you make a cool product and then buy your product, you know, Apple products or something like that, then you'll then. That's cool, and you can make some money. But ultimately, in the end, if you're not satisfying your shareholders, they will cut you off. Hmm. So, so I know you've got to look back and say, I mean, you saw today 
Microsoft and Yahoo are now going to be in combination for the ad market. All right. They've now decided to add Yahoo and Bing search services together for advertising. And so I believe, if I'm not mistaken, that used to be what was called Overture. So Overture was what Yahoo had purchased for the ad market, which was the only real competitor, I guess, to uh, to Google at the time. It actually came out before Google. Overture yeah. was the first. Overture was off. Yeah, it was. It's been a lot longer than. But uh, you know, AdWords has kind of taken over, and oh, then yeah. when. For, for a little while, I think, if I'm not mistaken, again, the Overture actually paid to have their ads deposited in Google's search engine. So even though it was coming from Yahoo and Yahoo owned the services, but right. now that's got to be what Microsoft and them are basically paying with each other. Right. But there is some some danger there because, you know, they've talked about before that Yahoo would be purchased by uh, Microsoft. Right. And so there's still that slight chance that that might happen, which scares all these people who do open source software. Because Yahoo owns a big portion of open source software, such as uh, Zimbra, I believe, is still owned by them, which is the only real technically existing competitor to Exchange Server. Oh, damn. I didn't know all this. Yeah. yeah that's so, kind of scary for the Microsofties. Yeah. So, you, well, most companies are purchased to kill off a product that bothers the other company. All right. That's really what they're purchased for. So, if that's the case, then. You can see uh, our file system development is going to go way down because now we're going to be talking about um, unless Oracle decides to come out with a new file system, <laughs> which I believe is actually probably in the works. Really? Like, um, you know, our Oracle database. <laughs> Oracle database is your, now your file system. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, no, I, I don't know. But, I mean, literally, there's not really anything on the forefront right now hmm. of survival as far as a different change in the file systems for our devices to live on. Wow. Well, we'll see what happens. Never know. All right, well, let's uh, let's go. We got about, why don't we do 10 more minutes here? Uh, if we have another topic we can talk about, and then we'll just hit the emails. We got about five emails here we'll address at the last par- portion of the show. And okay. If you guys do want to email us, just send us an e- send me an email at mailpodnuts.com, and uh, we'll just say you, want, you have a question for Scott, and then we'll, we will definitely address that on the show. Well, I, I guess the only other thing, just because I saw, you know, Seagate had posted the job and that they had previously done a patent for Hammer, that should probably be the one of the items we talk about. Unless yeah. you got another. No, let's do Hammer. What what is Hammer? So Hammer is called heat assisted magnetic recording, and uh, if you go back and look, I had done like a a previous, even like a short video that showed kind of like how it would work, like in 2006 or 2007. But now that they've posted the job and they're moving forward, it looks like it's going to be a reality. So what is what it? They, it's an old, old technology? Well, no, it's not an old technology, but here's, you know, the idea is, is that we can't, we have a problem. It's called the super paramagnetic effect. When you increase writing density to a drive, when you've increased it so much that one bit can flip the next bit next door to it. So in other words, two bits next to each other might flip arbitrarily on the drive, or you might have some bytes that change. Because they're so close together, you mean? They're so close together, and then writing to them causes the other bits to flip, and you're not shielding them correctly, and they're so small that you actually have uh, interference, basically, between two cells living together right. uh, or next to each other. And so when the bits flip arbitrarily, you know, regardless of what the reason is, it's an environmental characteristic, regardless of what it is, uh, that's called the super paramagnetic effect. So as we increase our density, it gets worse. So the idea was is that instead of uh, instead of just continuing to try to find smaller and smaller ways of writing, you can actually write more data if you heat up the location that you're going to be writing to. You can write a smaller density 
So the idea is there's going to be a laser pointed down at the disc, and it's going to be coming in front of your head. It will zap and hit the disc and heat up a location on the disc in order for you to more easily change the state of, of those, those bites and those locations. Why does heat help that process? Um, it, it, it makes it more malleable, I guess. And more, it's easier to change based on the heat and what actually happens. I'm really not sure exactly why heat might, it's a, you know, it's probably a component of like phase change and things like that, where it has, right. it's, you know, it, when it comes to physics and dealing, which I completely destroy physics every time I try to try to do it, I can understand enough to explain it to you, but that's about it. Okay, that's all right. But, uh, but ultimately, the whole point is, is that you know it breaks down a certain location to make it more malleable, so that basically it can actually store store data uh, in a smaller location and smaller density, okay. increasing our and they think by as much as a hundred times. Now, I've seen very many you know posts and things like that and statements that say it will increase it by four times the density. Um, you know, one on the engineering side, they say a hundred times, and then they tend to scale that back because as they start finding problems and problems, you know, exist, it will continue to uh, diminish the capacity. But four times would probably be an acceptable amount. Okay. Uh, so if you could go from, uh, you know, the three terabyte drives, which are now hitting the shelves, by the way, uh, three terabyte drives going to, uh, which you cannot use as a boot drive, by the way, do not. You can use it as a secondary, as a media drive by this, you know, slight hack that has to occur. But you cannot have it as a primary boot drive. Why not? Because because the MBR, we had this discussion before about the MBR, the master boot record. The master boot record does not have a location that you can store the end of a partition boundary or how big a partition boundary is. Because it stores the start location in a, in it's in a 32-bit format. And you have a start location and then you have a size. So two terabytes exceeds the count that's capable of being stored in 32 bits. So in 32 bits, you cannot store beyond the end of the disk. So you can only store to two terabytes. I see. So on a boot drive, you have this function that's actually hard-coded unless you switch to the GPT partition structure, the uh, GUID partition structure, So which also requires 64-bit windows, which also requires a change in your BIOS, and so you can no longer use... The current bias, you've got to go to what's called EFI. So your computer has to change, basically. Wow. Complicated. So, yeah, it continues to go. It's just this whole mess of things. But if you're going to buy a three terabyte and think you're going to put it in as a boot drive, well, you're not going to do it right now unless, you're, unless you've got one that supports EFI, you're using 64-bit windows, and you have a GPT partition structure. So, uh, so anyway, so regards to that, um, back to the hammer stuff. So, so the idea is there's going to be this laser. It's going to go in front of the disk, in front of your head, it's going to zap this place, making it easier for the head to have a lower density and make a change to this particular location. That will cause the lubrication to basically evaporate off that location of the disk. And somewhere on the disk, or somewhere at certain points in time, there is supposed to be a way for the disk to release the lubrication and respray the disks with lubrication again so that they aren't continually always being like zapped and melted. And so... There's supposedly a reservoir that will be inside the disk that will have lubrication. Oh my gosh, this is getting crazy now. And and that occasionally it will somehow splatter this lubrication over the disk. And uh, can they you have, refill them? Well, no. Uh, they have made a statement that there will be plenty of lubrication to last the lifespan of the disk. Now the problem is, is that what does lifespan mean? It could could mean you know six years, 
three years, two years. I mean, normally, you know, in legal terms, in most cases, when you say, you know, lifetime warranty or whatever, in most cases, it means seven years. But I doubt seriously, we don't really have this that are living that long. So maybe lifespan is three years. Or maybe it's the deal of the warranty. It's 90 days. <laughs> <laughs> that's the lifespan. Yeah, well, you know, these days that's about the lifespan of a hard drive is 90 days. So uh, every 90 days, you should be changing out your hard drive as if it was a floppy disk. (laughs) (laughs) So that ain't going to happen. No, and it doesn't happen, which is why I get recoveries in. That's awesome. Right. You guys keep sending them to me. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) This is crazy. Okay. You you create the heat, dries up the drive, have to re-lubricate. It seems to me like just another thing that could go wrong. It, it does. It seems completely like uh, another thing to go wrong. Um, uh, I did briefly kind of look up and see why the heat makes a difference. My my impression is is that they changed the material, the metal that they would normally use in the platter, yeah. and so therefore uh, they can write to a smaller area, but you can't write to uh, you know this thicker cobalt or whatever it is that they're using for their alloy, and that. You basically you'd have to shrink your space, which means you have to heat it up in order to actually make the phase change to the <laughs> location. This so is nuts. So, so briefly, you know, at least in that, it kind of looks like that that's what's actually, you know, making that change. But, you know, I, I worry about, you know, because nobody ever thinks about, well, how are we going to repair these things or how are we going to get it back? Right. They're like, well, just buy a new one. Well, you know, we do have to have some sort of, I mean, I am so tired of let's get in a hurry to make something four times bigger rather right. than four times more reliable. What good is a car if it's a big giant truck or van, but you can't drive it? Exactly. Good point. And so I'm really tired of that. I would much rather have, you know, a hundred percent stable, rock solid, scuzzy hard drive. <laughs> that, but you know, unfortunately, so you, do you think these are going to actually come out? You know, I have a feeling, especially since they're not as far along. In my impression, they're not as far along as they wanted people to believe that they were. Okay. Because, uh, you know, the the process, and again, it's just it's just my impression. I'm not saying this with any you know firm knowledge, other than the fact that when you post a job that says, I would like to hire a hammer principal. I mean, and it says uh, on LinkedIn, hammer principal design engineer. And this was posted July 12th of 2010. So if your job description is, is that you now are looking for a job and they already had submitted the uh, paperwork for in 2006 or 2007 for the patent, I'm guessing if they need a primary engineer, either they lost one, (laughs) he died, or... uh, (laughs) Or they haven't really started to get as far as they can. So, um, so they're looking for somebody who's familiar with their technology, their patented technology, to to work for them. It really seems strange, doesn't it? Yeah. Yes, but you know, here's here's the other thing though is that by the time you actually do that and you come out with it, you know, I guess your hope is is that if you can make four times the space, so if you can go from three gigs to you know twelve gigs, yeah, oh, oh, you know, by two thousand and fourteen then, you know, maybe that works. Right. But, you know, from the size, it has to be astronomical for you to go, I really need, you know, uh, you know this, I mean, I'm sorry, terabytes. Right, right. Terabytes to, uh, um, you know, by that time, uh, what are we going to have otherwise? Yeah. Um, so, because I'm still betting on uh, the possibility that what's called racetrack memory, that we're actually going to store our data in a solid piece of metal is actually going to work better. I mean, since the prototype exists, and the guy who invented it is actually, or the guy who's been working on it is actually the guy who created the heads that we use on the current hard drives uh, before perpendicular. 
there's a great chance that he's going to win that battle by, you know, 2015, 2016, and that we may have a new hard drive by 2020 or something. Is he currently that, working on that? Yeah, yeah. He still is working on it. He's published some videos recently. He's um he's done some things. Uh, um, if anybody's you know, not familiar with Racetrack Memory, we talked about it in one of the, the earlier episodes. Uh, just do a Google search for it. It's pretty incredible. In fact, right. I was blown away when you first, you know, told me about it. Well, and there are some videos and stuff that are out there based up, based upon you know some of the work that's being done by you know Palo Alto Research or something like that or yeah. whatever it is with regards to that. But it's um, um, it it's really known uh, you know in the physics world under what's called domain walls. So domain walls is a re- or is really what okay. It, but racetrack memory is like the name that was given it for marketing purposes. Is uh-huh. what it looks like. It's a good name. Right, let me read some emails here. Here's a quick one for you, Scott. Uh, it's from Louise. He says, do you have a recommendation for a DOD hard disk repair station? I'm looking for one. That's it. A DOD as in Department of Defense? I'm guessing. S- repair station? Does uh, that make any sense or no? Well, well, not so much so from a standpoint of the you know DOD, uh, unless that's what it means is Department of Defense. Um, my guess would primarily be, you know, some of the stuff that I use here is is some of the upper end stuff that they would be looking at if they're, you know, Department of Defense or something, I'd be looking at a PC 3000 or, you know, an Atola or, you know, the physical equipment. There's a couple of things for, you know, doing heavy duty platter replacements and things like that. That's, that's the best I could say. Uh, okay. it, it's, I do, nothing. I do think he means Department of Defense, but uh, I, that's right. all the info he gave me. I looked at some other emails and, they, and there's no clarification. So I right. guess we'll go with that. I mean, this is the highest end equipment that's out. So, you know, something like a deep star disk imagers and, uh, and the, and the PC 3000, there really isn't a lot that's, that's more robust that exists that's out there for any other purpose. So, uh, and you know, as far as benches and stuff goes, clean rooms and things like that, I have plenty of recommendations. So anybody who wants to email me on that, I'll type something up and I'll, I'll respond to you with uh, lots of detail on those things. But, there you go. Um, All yeah. Right. That's good for that one. Let's, this is from Ben who, this is actually Nebin um, who has his own uh, podcast network. It's at Q E T U O K U O dot M E. If you want to check that out, this is Ben. He says, uh, Hey Steve, I thought this question would be good for the listeners. My hard drive died. Can you explain the difference between a, a, a primary and extended hard drive partition in Windows? And is there a difference when re- trying to recover files? Um, there is a difference in trying to recover the files from a standpoint of it, it is then wrapped inside of a, another partition. So you can only have, with the current MBR, the master boot record that we've been talking about, you can only have four uh, possible partitions. Or you can have three primary partitions, and primaries mean I can boot from it, basically. Like you have an active switch, you can put the switch to it, and then you can boot from it as a primary partition. And there is an option for extended partitions, which means I have one partition that I'm going to give up, and it's going to be able to wrap a partition inside of another partition. So extended means I have a partition that exists inside of another And if I want another partition and I still have space, I can make a partition inside of that partition. So you just think of a wrapper and a wrapper. You know, it's that Christmas box where you put a box inside a box and you keep wrapping it. Know what it's more like? It's more like Inception. Have you seen that movie? Yeah. Okay, it's like that. Yeah. So it's one after the other. And so basically you'll have a header and then data. And you'll have this looping through process of these extended partitions existing there. Um, Now, you know, your problem is obviously like when you actually go to do the recovery, You've got to deal with 
this division that it can't just be I scanned the whole hard drive and try to recover this big piece of content. It's more logical if you go, oh, look, I can see from my MBR that I have these these containers and you can go deal with container after container so that you're keeping yourself focused in that area so that you don't end up having one JPEG that has a picture, you know, that has part of it coming from another partition structure or something. Partitions are very important when you're dealing with trying to do the recovery. The more contained you can be on a partition and not going to the second and third partition looking for stuff, the better off you're going to be in your recovery because you don't get the tethers and the table and all the other content from that. So cool. That definitely answers the question. All right. Well, should we go on to the next one? Sure. This is again from Ben. Another question. Uh, should you replace a nine-year-old hard drive with five powered-on years? That's the whole question. Yeah, uh, um, we, you know, ultimately the problem is, is that as drives age, the lubrication and the and you know the fundamental components inside the drive start to you know deteriorate. Uh, you know, you can think of it a little bit like I used to have an old cassette tape, and the longer you let the cassette tape sit out, the more it's going to basically oxidize or or lose its ability to maintain its mag mag magnetic component right. uh, for oxidation and things like that. Um, so I, I would say that you should probably at least severely consider completely backing that thing up um, <laughs> one way or another. Now, if it's, you know, nine-year-old hard drive, you, you know, it probably isn't two gigs. So you probably know it's at nine years old. You're looking at the maximum it would be in 2000, 2001, uh, you know, 20 gigs at 2000, 40 right. gigs at 2001. So it's time. So, yeah. You could probably upload that to Google mail and uh, <laughs> you'll be, you'll be better off there, but I agree. I would certainly consider, uh, you know, your only problem is, is that that drive is certainly more reliable than the drives that are built today. Yeah. actually, and So that's a kind of a horrible thing to say, but it's, um, you know, ray to raise or making sure you buy two and have a backup or whatever. But, um, but you should really consider, especially knowing that you're at the end of what the lifespan of the magnetic material is that you're storing the content on. Right. Um, essentially, you know, all of the stuff that we're storing magnetically is all rust. Basically it's, you know, similar in nature, but we did switch to, you know, thin film media, which has, you know, basically it's a plastic coated type of material that allows you to, you know, store magnetically things more like what you probably consider it's cassette tape or something like that. Um, so if you had to buy a drive right now, Scott, like if, like if he said, okay, I'll replace this nine year drive, um, what should I get? Well, that's a tough choice because when I'm looking at these right now, I know how bad the Western Digital drives currently are with their boards and their head assemblies. And so from that standpoint, I'm a little scared of it, even though no one, you know, you haven't seen like a big news article that says these are just horrible. Don't buy these or, right. or that they have these, you know, high rates of failure. Uh, Seagates are having still, you know, everybody still sees those as high rates of failure. But those are the two primary best selling hard drives out there, too. So therefore, I'm going to see more failures than I would otherwise right um uh, hitachis uh they seem to run well but when they actually get physical damage because of the way that the content the the platter starts to flake that the it's kind of like a cd-rom when it flakes it the flakes actually get into the other heads and they actually cause all the heads to fail and then scratch the platter so that it basically becomes a clear piece of glass um so you've lost all your data so I don't feel great or confident about any of them uh, from that perspective. So I'd feel more, I would feel a lot happier if you would just say either A, I buy two of every drive and I mirror them or clone them or back them up on a, with a script. 
or I have an online backup, or right. I use a RAID array. Uh, you know, at least in a RAID array, you've got some redundancy, even though there's still a possibility of failure, you've got a greater chance of, of your drives surviving. Huh. And um, So get, what, get what's on sale. Yeah, so pretty much you're getting what's on sale, because the other thing is, too, uh, you know, I used to say, buy it according to warranty, so that you at least have a drive you can replace. But the drive they send you back from warranty is a refurb drive, you can argue with them all you want. They're not going to send you a brand new drive. They're not going to send you what's going on the shelf in retail. They're going to send you a refurb drive. And those things are absolute garbage. Those are somebody else's problem that they fixed in some way, and now they sent it back to you. <laughs> so you send in a drive for repair. They figure out, oh, look, if I if it's a 500 gig, I can make a 250 out of it by cutting this head off. And then they'll send that back to you. So oh, it's just like, man, that's yeah, lame. Yeah, it is. It's very lame that, you know, you can't rely on a, refurbished hard drive at all period if you are relying on refurbished hard drives you're crazy because you need to be backing those things up doing whatever but they're they're just terrible it's good, I, good I tip just can't even tell you. good tip i mean especially like the micro center and places you come across them they sell them so yeah stay away yeah well see that's the other thing about external hard drives as well my understanding is and again uh, not pointing fingers at any particular company but that uh the external hard drives that are in usb cases and stuff yeah that they don't the, the drives that are more likely to not pass the internal uh, box, the retail boxes. They, they get put into them? Yeah, they get put into those external ones because they're harder to test. They're harder for someone to know you got some bad sectors or that you've got a you know a bigger problem or something. Oh. And so uh, so they don't test out as well as they do. Because, you know, if, let's face it, if you're building your own computer, then you go buy these internal drives and you test them more yourself. Right. But when you're buying a external unit and it's USB, as we've talked about before, USB sucks. And so you really can't test very well through USB. You plug it in, it works or it doesn't work. Wow, so that's uh, equally lame. Yeah, it is. And then you send that back, you get a refurb. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, it's a no-win situation. Yeah, it is. Back it up is. often, I guess. Yep. All right, Haroon from Manchester, UK here. I often hear you say, and he's talking to me about this because I do talk about this. I, I mentioned this on Podnest Daily every once in a while. Um, he says, I often hear you say that smart is an unreliable indicator of a hard drive's health, as the sectors that smart resides on could be corrupted themselves. So my question is, if smart is unreliable, what can be used instead? And, yeah, that's that's his question. Well, you know, the problem with smart primarily is that it leads you to believe that by watching smart, then you could have some sort of predictive failure that your drive is going to die and warn you before it's actually dead. And uh, in reality, there there is no such thing. <laughs> I wish it was as robust as they make it sound. Obviously, if you're getting more and more sector failures, then there's a good chance that your drive is going bad. But there's really not a replacement. And you'll notice, though, that most people who say, my drive died, did not get a smart warning in right. advance. They, they, It just all of a sudden, bam, it's gone one day. And a lot of it has to do with firmware and the tables and the way they're written. And uh, so there is no way to know currently, as far as I'm concerned, that your drive is going to die any more than there is even for your car. I mean, you go out and you sit in your car one day and it won't start. Hmm. And you don't and you don't know why. If you knew, you wouldn't have had that problem in the first place. Right. But uh so you can buy a backup car. But uh <laughs> but no, there's there's I wish it was that predictive and that you could actually do it, but that was the reason it was made, but keep in mind that also that has a lot to do with money and warranty because if you send your drive in for warranty, it costs the company money, so they want to set the thresholds high and 
they don't want you sending it in for warranty, so... So it's not going to trip smart as often as one would yeah, like? Yeah, no, not really. Uh, I mean, those thresholds and stuff. I mean, and sometimes you'll notice that they'll just say, like, if you check smart, it just says, okay. It says your drive's okay. <laughs> or I have one that says, it's 80% healthy. What does that mean? <laughs> what is the 80%? Does that mean that, you know, I'm losing 20% a day? <laughs> is it going to... I mean, what is 80% healthy anyway? I don't even still know what that 80% (laughs) actually meant when it read that from the drive, because even the extended tests and everything all came up clean, no problem. So So I don't know it. Run image, you're saying (laughs) positive, what would be better? Run MHDD on it and just just every once in a while to see if it's how many bad sectors there are? Well, you know, typically that's all you're looking at is bad sectors for the predictive failure anyway. You're looking for how long, you know, something took the... But most of the time, the real problem is going to be something that affects, you know, say firmware or something where right. it has an exception. Right. Drops to to a firmware prompt inside the drive, and you don't get to see that. So you don't know in those cases. So, you know, MHDD is a way to kind of get you, give a good idea of what's wrong with your drive from a standpoint of, do I have some bad sectors? But not much more than that. You don't get gotcha. any other internal feedback. And there, um, and there is nothing you're saying that can do it. There's really nothing. Uh, okay. You know, smart was a good idea. And, you know, it does monitor temperature and things like that right. and can at least tell you some of the, you know, oh, look, something did have a failure. Right. But it seldom is actually giving you the content you need to know. I need to replace this before I have a big problem. Well, they named it well. It sounds good. Smart. Yeah, it's a self-monitoring analysis and reporting technology is what that stands for. So clever it's a yeah it's supposed to uh do something and <laughs> and maybe at one time it actually did if they actually set their thresholds you know small enough and right. they did enough reporting but i, I my guess is is that there's not a lot of work going into that to make yeah. it so that we can tell our drives are going to fail early enough that we can get that warranty in uh and get it replaced i just don't think that's really happening good good info good to know now two more quick emails here this is from roger he says uh, the next time you talk to Scott, can you ask him if the Western Digital Black drives are worth the price premium, and what are the main differences uh, of those drives compared to the Western Digital Blue drives? I know the black drives offer lo- longer warranties, but I'm wondering if they're actually built differently with better parts, <coughs> and do these parts make a difference in terms of reliability? Thanks, Roger. Yeah. So uh, so typically, you're looking at your price points being like, uh, you know, green is their cheapest thing, blue is their midline, and black is their more expensive Typically, you're looking at a lifespan of components from a standpoint of, so so as an example, when you go to buy flash memory, if you go buy the micro center memory stick, it's going to be a piece of junk and it's going to die, but, you know, it has a lifetime warranty, but it's going to die. Like, you know, it's going to be slow. It's going to be the, it's going to be the crap that Cisco was throwing out. That's what <laughs> you're going to get. So, uh, so when you go to buy something a little bit better, say a Samsung or, you know, a SanDisk or something like that, where yeah. they actually have a name brand that's going behind it, it's going to be a, a chip that lasted longer, that, you know, was baked for a longer period of time, that the silicon's going to be more robust and able to survive a little bit better. Those chips make their way onto the drives. And so those kind of things that, like, this silicon was baked and this processor is going to be better and this memory is going to be better are what make it onto the better, more expensive drives like SCSI drives or the uh, the electronics that are going to be in some of the um, Enterprise Edition drives and things like that. So you are looking at normally better components. Uh, usually for the black drives, you're looking at also higher speed. And because they're higher speed and they're responding quicker, in a lot of cases you may also be looking at um, their survival rate might not be as good just because 
the speed and how quickly that they're operating in a lot of cases might affect uh, the uh, you know how how hot they get and what actually happens to the wear leveling schemes inside the drive and things like that. But but ultimately, you would normally say yes, they're better. Do we get them in for recovery? Yes, we get them in for recovery, just like every other drive. We get you know Raptors and other things in for recovery too. Uh, they're a little harder to do from a standpoint like a Raptor is a little bit more difficult to actually get the right parts for because there's less of them. Uh, same thing with black drives. You know, people aren't aren't in such a big hurry. But ultimately, they're typically supposedly better components. Um, do you think they're trust, worth the price premium? Especially if you need the speed. If you, I, I would prefer to have a more reliable drive or what I would think would be a more reliable drive. The problem with reliability is that you just don't really know. I mean, right. it's like, so you buy a Porsche and one day the Porsche doesn't start. It's that, that one day that's not going to start too. So it doesn't matter, you know, how that works from that perspective you know it's you know one day the car just doesn't start right. and it doesn't matter which car it was so i mean you know there certainly are yugos driving around and uh and they work so <laughs> um but you know for speed and for performance yes you would be looking for black you would be looking for those things if you you know there are problems with like the green drives and things like that being used in raid arrays because they have this timing problem with regards to how they handle a bad block and how long it takes for them to actually you know seek the location for the bad block right. and you wouldn't want to use them in a raid array so you would be buying it or you would want to even though there is a tool to change that timing uh it's you know recently released uh, i wouldn't think that that would be your mess your best choice i mean if you're trying to save a dollar you're probably also going to lose your data so <laughs> all right well that answers that last question we have here is uh from steve d he wants to know his customer has a western digital one of those uh external drives the passports the small ones and yes. uh a guy his customer here he stores it into it in his safe in a safe in his garage and um, you know he lives in like New York area, so it's, he's got cold winters. Not a mm. heated, not a heated garage. I'm assuming. Is right. it not smart to store your hard drive out in your garage in a safe? I would certainly say temperature greatly affects. I I've always recommended people don't leave their laptop in the trunk of their car when right. it's freezing outside, because you know they tend to go, oh, I need it, and I run out to the car, and they come back in, and they try to start it up immediately. You know, you you do have problems with drives that are, you know, metal contracts when it's cold. And so the heads are drawn closer to the platter and things like that happen. Uh, it, it can cause a severe death. Now, if you took that, you let it warm up in room temperature for 24 hours before you used it, then maybe it would be okay. But still, but, the contraction and expansion of the, the drive yeah, itself right. isn't isn't good for it, right? Right. No, I would say it definitely isn't good for it. There is a minimum. That, you know, typically you see minimums of what the operating temperatures are and maximums of what the operating temperatures are. But, you know, from the most part, for the most part, I would say that in freezing temperatures, you're going to have bigger problems, you know, just like you do in areas where you have, you know, thinner oxygen because the heads are spinning on a platter and they're floating over the platter. So, right. so uh, you know, certainly storing in a safe is a good idea, but not necessarily out in the freezing cold where that might be a problem. Gotcha. So, well, there you go. So not, so not see, smart. Yeah, no, I don't. And again, this, you know, the thing about the notebook is the common thing. We get more drives in in the winter, obviously, than we do the rest of the year, just because there are issues with, oh, I brought my laptop in and it didn't spin up correctly. Exactly. Yeah, so, I've, I've uh, when I had my shop, I had the same type of thing. Like, oh, yeah, well, I just, I, I had it in my car and I brought it inside. It didn't work. And sometimes the screen cracks, too. The, right. You know, I've right. seen some of the screens crack based on temperature and right. 
you know, it's just, I just wouldn't, I, I take my laptop with me when I go, wherever I go. Yeah. So. Cool. Well, thanks for answering all those questions, cool. Scott. Okay. I do have one thing I want to say uh, with regards to, um, I, you know, I've done other podcasts. I do quite a few other podcasts. And uh, I have another podcast that uh, I've done on a somewhat regular basis. It's called the um, ISDN, I, I'm sorry, ISD, the InfoSec Daily Podcast. Okay. And um, uh, so the two guys that I do that with, there was a guy named um, Rick Hayes and Matthew Shoemaker. And... On Friday, Matthew Shoemaker uh, committed suicide. He killed himself. So now, you know, the, the world is short on another host of a, a great podcast. But uh, I just kind of wanted to, you know, let people know and that, I've, that you know, he will be missed and that he is, he is gone but not forgotten. Um, we, I did have a thing where I was asking for, he left his kids behind and they don't really have an income or have anything right now. And uh, we were trying to do some things for donations and stuff. So if any of the listeners want to donate anything to Matthew's kids and, and they, and they've probably heard if they've listened to this podcast, they probably heard me on the other podcast as well and heard Matthew on the podcast. So if, if anybody feels that they want to give anything to his kids and stuff, I'm doing what I can to pass them on. And me and Rick have set up an account to, uh, to do what we can to help out. But um, where, do, I just, where do we go for that? Um, if they email me or contact me, um, I'll send them the links for the, cause we have a PayPal account and a bank account set up mm-hmm. to collect the information and collect the, the stuff for them. Um, and you know, just trying to help them out. He's got a, a, a kid that's nine and four and, uh, they're, they're having a really hard time with it right now. And they're having a financial pro, you know, time with it because right. you know, there was no life insurance or anything like that apparently. So, wow. uh, so we're, we're doing what we can to help out and, um, and I just wanted to let the listeners know, because like I said, a lot of them probably did listen to that podcast as well. I, I don't know what we're going to do to, you know, if we're going to continue it or what Rick's plan is yet. Um, oh, man, but, I'm really sorry to hear that. That's terrible. So, well, it it is, but, you know, things things happen and we're trying to move on and do whatever, but uh, but he'll be missed. But, you know, that's... that's well, it's a noble cause. Uh, to contact you, you go, you want them to go through your website? Yeah, if you go to my hard drive dot and just email me, either you know hit the thing on the side and just let me know, or uh, or there are some posts being done. So the ISD podcast actually has on their website. He's been posting things. The services were on Tuesday, so we've already had his funeral and already done yeah. everything. And he's got some th- links and stuff up there for where where things will go or what the bank account will be and things like that. Gotcha. All right. So uh, my hard drive dot com. You can email Scott if you need that, or or if you already listen to the podcast, you probably know where to go. Um, what else, Scott? Where are you going to be? What are you going to be doing uh, next few weeks, few months? Do you any anything you want to uh, any announcements you want to make? Yeah, um, right now in September, I am supposed to do uh, Sands and My Hard Drive Died have come up with. Uh, so, if anybody knows Sands.org, the security organization, and I've done some classes with them before, we've made an agreement to do a class in Las Vegas. And so, if anybody is uh, thinking about taking my class or doing anything with that. This would be a perfect time to sign up for Sands Las Vegas. And uh, send, again, send me an email. <clears throat> I've got links and stuff up on my site. But uh, if anybody's interested in a September class in Las Vegas, of course, you know, it is Las Vegas. Uh, that's, you know, a great place to go have a class. So <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's, got per- it's got perks. Yes, it's got perks. And, you know, so at the end of the day, you can go and gamble away. Um, you, don't, you don't like pull hard drives out of like slot machines and stuff, do you? Uh, I have done work on them, actually. Yeah. I have done data recovery on slot machines. Uh, I, I know some people who work at a few of the companies that make them, and uh, 
they have servers and equipment and hard drives in them, just like everything else. And I have done data recovery on casino slot machines. Ah. Yes. Yep. They can be hacked. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Yeah, uh, pretty much. <laughs> I think at some point in time I've done them on everything. Are, are they all networked I'm, together? Are the slot machines yeah. networked together? Yes, they are. Neat. They're networked, and there is a server, and there is a, a SQL database. There is all the normal stuff you would think of a network. Um, they're not as robust as far as you know keeping them up and running right. and doing things, but right. they they certainly are there. So sounds like the plot of like Ocean's fourteen or something like that. Yeah, yeah, it might be. Uh, <laughs> I'll I'll let you know when I'm working on it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Well, that, so you could find Scott and you get more information on uh, wherever he's going to be at myharddrivedie.com. That's going to be it for this month's episode. We're going to try to keep it monthly if we can. Guys, sorry about the delay, but um, we definitely keep sending us emails. I will ask Scott uh, whatever whatever you're interested. Whenever you have a question for, just uh, email me at mail at podnuts.com, and uh, we will talk about that on the show. Well, Scott, thanks again. Uh, we'll see you in a couple weeks, and uh, see everybody next time. Great. Thanks for having me on. Bye-bye. Bye. Music has been provided by Evan King at purevolume.com slash Evan King.